Today's podcast is brought to you by Premum, connecting Hemong fellows, general oncologists, and APPs with leading subspecialists for quick, free advice when you need it. Check out their website using the special fellow on call link at tfoc.primum.co. Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we are continuing our journey in our myeloma series, and this time we've arrived at the true diagnosis and risk stratification of multiple myeloma. I'm super excited that we're finally here. We've been leading up to this episode for a while, and so I'm just excited to share this with you all. Yeah, definitely. And and remember to check out our HemePath series if you have any questions on things like cytogenetics and flow cytometry, because we really talk about those a lot in this episode. And sorry for the historical context, but we think it's really important to understanding myeloma. And just as another plug as well, I would recommend you all listen to our first few episodes in our myeloma series. That's going to be critical to ensuring that you understand, you know, all the numbers and the testing and some of the the wording that we talk about in this episode. So, you know, I don't want to keep you guys hanging. Let's go ahead and roll that show. So, I, you know, I think as we've been doing with the last few episodes, it's probably helpful just to jump right into a case to set the stage for for what it is that we're going to be talking about. And so if you guys are game, I have another case for you to, to kick this episode off. Yeah, let's roll it. All right. Sounds good. So I have a 63-year-old female with IgG kappa, multiple myeloma. She had an M spike of 2.2 and a kappa light chain of 70 a lambda light chain of seven, and that resulted in a ratio of 10. And so the SPEP and the light chains were sent because she had a normal acidic anemia with a hemoglobin of 9.5 with a normal calcium and a normal creatinine. And we also want to get that 24-hour UPEP after the MGUS is identified in order to help us establish a baseline. And this also helps us not only establish the baseline, but also helps us with risk stratification. And so this showed that she had 600 milligrams per 24 hours of monoclonal protein excretion. And recall from our prior episode that this is also known as the Bentz-Jones proteins. And remember, this is an overwhelming amount of protein for the kidney to be excreting. And so therefore, we are now seeing it in the the urine studies as well. Remember that we are trying to define patients as being low risk or high risk when an MGUS is diagnosed. And remember that in order to make this diagnosis of someone being higher risk, we are talking about a non-IgG, somebody with an abnormal free light chain ratio, or somebody with an M spike that's greater than 1.5. And so anybody that has any of these criteria, we want to do some further investigating. So we get a bone marrow biopsy, which we did in this patient, and we also get imaging. So her bone marrow biopsy showed 40% clonal population of plasma cells. And then we got some imaging. And remember, the options are low-dose CT scan, a PET CT, or an MRI. We don't really do skeletal surveys because of their lower sensitivity. In our case, we were able to get this patient a PET scan that did show asymptomatic lytic lesions in T5 and L3. So just to kind of round out the discussion, a 63-year-old female with an IgG kappa who had an M spike of 2.2 
kappa to lambda light chain ratio of 10, who also happened to get a bone marrow biopsy because of some of these higher risk features, and which showed 40% clonal population of plasma cells. She also got appropriate imaging done, in this case with a PET-CT, which showed asymptomatic lytic lesions. She had more than one. She had T5 and L3. So here we are with this patient. You know, guys, in the last few weeks, we broke down MGUS and smoldering myeloma in in detail. But Vivek, can you give us a recap on some of the historical context and how these entities were defined before we get into our discussion about multiple myeloma and diagnostics um, and, and even MRD testing? You know, I think understanding some of the history about this disease definitely helps me better understand why we approach this disease the way that we do. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is very, very important for all of us to understand what the historical perspective is, because you cannot understand the context of multiple myeloma trials and when to treat smoldering multiple myeloma unless you know the natural history and the context of this disease. And we have a lot of good studies for that. So to recap some of the high yield points that we've covered. MGUS in general is incredibly common. It occurs in about 5% of the adult population, and the risk of progression is on ballpark about 1% per year. Obviously, if you have any of the higher risk features that Rona had mentioned, that non-IgG, an M-spike greater than 1.5, and an abnormal free light chain ratio, if you have all three of those things, you have a higher chance than this 1% per year. But in general, MGUS is common. Most of these patients don't get myeloma, which is a much more rare malignancy in the total population. So you might be wondering, well, okay, we have this MGUS, but who actually defined MGUS? How did it come about? And I want to talk about the history. So there was a a really good physician, Dr. Bob Kyle from the Mayo Group, who really defined MGUS by doing observational studies on patients who had an identified M protein and just looked to see how they did. And he is the one who really characterized this disease entity and also characterized smoldering myeloma. One important thing to know is that, remember, if you get that SPEP for whatever clinical indication you do for, and nowadays I feel like everybody's getting an SPEP, but if you do that, always get the free light chains. The reason why this is critically important, about two-thirds of patients with an MGUS will have a normal free light chain ratio, meaning that if you have a normal free light chain ratio and a lower M-spike, you probably don't need to do that bone marrow biopsy. You probably don't need to get those imaging studies. That's why the light chains are important to get. The other thing is we always talked about the 24-hour UPEP as an important component of baseline disease status and risk stratification because remember, like Dan said, you can diagnose smoldering myeloma with greater than 500 milligrams of monoclonal protein in the urine, but you only want to get that after the MGUS is diagnosed because we know, again, 5% will have MGUS and not many of them will get myeloma. So the next big thing is you'd probably wonder, well, how did smoldering myeloma, how did that become its own entity? What does the smoldering mean? Does it mean that it's just waiting to to everybody will eventually get myeloma? And the answer is smoldering myeloma is also pretty incredibly common. And so Dr. Bob Kyle, there's a really good paper in the England Journal of 2007 that we've linked in our show notes, and we'll show you a graph again. And that really shows you the risk of progression for smoldering myeloma. What we know is that in the first five years, the risk of progression to myeloma is 10% per year. So in that first five-year period, it's critical to monitor these patients closely. But again, not all of these patients are developing overt active multiple myeloma. And if you look at the curve for the incidence of myeloma in these patients, it drops off after about the year 10 mark. 
And it really gets to about that 1% per year MGUS point, which really just shows you that smoldering myeloma is heterogeneous. There are some patients who are already in that very premalignant MGUS phase, and they'll stick in that premalignant MGUS phase. And there are some patients who have a higher risk of developing that overt myeloma, and that's that steep rise in that first five years that you see. But then the rest of the patients kind of reset back to that regular MGUS. So it's very heterogeneous when we think about something like a smoldering multiple myeloma. One of the really interesting observational studies was done in Iceland, and what they did is they literally screened over 75,000 people who were asymptomatic with an SPEP and free light chains, and they estimated that the prevalence of smoldering multiple myeloma is about 0.5% in adults over 40. So that's pretty prevalent, meaning that obviously not 0.5% of the entire adult population is getting multiple myeloma. So smoldering myeloma is still very prevalent. So we have to think about when do we need to treat this and how do we differentiate this from multiple myeloma? Because like I said, remember that it's heterogeneous. There's some people closer to the myeloma spectrum. And so that's a really, really important thing to keep in mind when we think about this disease. The last thing I want to mention is how does multiple myeloma develop? What is its pathogenesis? How do you get from an MGUS to a smoldering myeloma, and then to myeloma. Or for some patients, how do you get from smoldering myeloma to myeloma? What is happening? What we know, and there's a really good paper done by Vincent Rajkumar that we're linking in our show notes, that he really talked about the cytogenetic changes and how a cell becomes a myeloma cell. What ends up happening is first, the cell has to develop some sort of clonality. That's how you get your MGUS, right? That's how you're getting your smoldering multiple myeloma. There's some clonal process going on. So the cell developed a mutation. It clones itself, but it's not bad enough to where it's secreting all of these excess light chains and immunoglobulins that are causing issues. These haven't become overt cancerous myeloma cells. What then happens is that For the MGUS patients, they just happen to have a lower risk profile of their genetic mutation, and they end up having a smaller risk of developing myeloma. The way that they develop myeloma is they have to get a second hit. Think about like a colon polyp. Not everybody with a benign adenoma is going to get colon cancer. It's kind of the same sort of analogous concept in some ways that not everybody with MGUS is going to get overt myeloma. They have to get another mutation that occurs. And that's really what's happening. The patients with smoldering myeloma have some sort of a genetic profile within their plasma cell that makes them at a higher risk for developing that next mutation to tip them into active multiple myeloma. So it's the idea of of accumulating these mutations, and some patients are at higher risk than others. Things like the IgA isotype of the M-spike are enriched for these higher risk mutations, and they have a higher risk for developing that second hit and will then go on to develop overt multiple myeloma. Yeah, like that was awesome. And, you know, I think, again, it is such a good reminder. I, I, I don't think we really talk about the history of a lot of different disease types very often, but I, I specifically think, as we've been alluding to, there's a lot of controversy and kind of, you know, uh, differences of opinion and even approaches to myeloma treatment. But if you understand the historical context of this disease, what Vivek just summarized very nicely, you can see why, you know, there is this, you know, breadth of approach to this disease. And so, you know, I appreciate you you taking the time to, to talk to us through that. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the last thing I want to say, I know this is a long, random, rambling tangent on this, but I think it's really important because we're going to talk about treatment of myeloma. And here's the key thing. What we talked about was that patients who have myeloma that Dan defined, they have some sort of end organ damage, right? They developed possibly renal dysfunction or renal failure. They developed possibly a fracture from a bony lesion. So the whole goal in the myeloma field is how do we prevent that from happening? And if we have a patient who has a molecular profile due to their mutations that I just explained earlier that puts them at that higher risk for developing that active myeloma, should we intervene early to prevent a symptomatic fracture or something like irreversible symptomatic renal dysfunction? And that's why many of the ASH abstracts that you see are looking at that concept of should we treat multiple myeloma early in the smoldering phase when some of those patients are, again, more towards that probably going to develop a malignancy, and you have to balance over-treating some patients, right, that you're going to over-treat the patients who would have never developed myeloma, but you don't want to under-treat the patients who might develop a bad bone fracture or develop renal failure that can cause problems in the future. And that's a big unanswered question is thinking about that. How do we prevent this end organ damage from happening? And what is the risk benefit, right? What is the number needed to treat to prevent one fracture, for example, in this population that we might be over-treating? And that's really where the field is heading. And we're going to talk a lot about that in our next episode on the treatments and as we talk about smoldering myeloma. We want to take a minute to tell you a little bit more about the sponsor for today's episode, Premum. Deciding on a patient's treatment plan, but feeling overwhelmed by the constantly expanding universe of medical literature? Premum is a new platform designed to help you answer your patient-specific questions with insight from experts. Using the HIPAA-compliant platform, you can connect with leading subspecialists to have your questions answered. And even better, you can get your responses within one day and the website's free to use. Feel more confident that what you're doing is best for your patient. Man, I really wish I had this when I was seeing patients for multiple myeloma, and it's great for classical hematology and solid tumor oncology as well. To learn more, visit tfoc.primum.co. That's tfoc.primum.co. In our case, I just wanted to kind of talk through a little bit about this bone marrow biopsy and that workup, just to refresh our memory of why we do what we do and what it shows. So we get an aspirate and a core specimen from a bone marrow biopsy. Recall that on the aspirate, we get a smear, and this is to obtain a cell count with a differential. And also that way we can run ancillary testing, including things like a flow cytometry, the cytogenetics, and also get molecular testing. On the core biopsy, that gives us an idea of the bone marrow architecture and the cellularity. This is the specimen that we obtain that IHC testing on, and this is to help enumerate specific types of cells uh, based on the staining patterns. And remember that clinical flow cytometry looks at live cells in suspension so that we can identify the immunophenotype. It's essentially the hair color of the cells. And then the IHC looks at the protein expression by staining cells with a fixed specimen. So in our case, our patient had 40% plasma cells. So can we talk a little bit about this, guys? And, you know, where is that number coming from? Is that based on IHC? Is that flow? Uh, how, which number do we look at to better understand what the number of plasma cells truly is? That's really important to, to think about. You will actually get a plasma cell percentage in, in several different parts of the report when you're looking at a bone marrow biopsy. But you should keep in mind that plasma cells don't 
really do well with aspiration. It's it's hard for them to survive that step of getting aspirated into a tube and then getting processed as an aspirate. And because the flow cytometry is run on the aspirate, that percentage that comes out in flow cytometry will often be an underestimate of the overall plasma cell percentage in the bone marrow. And the same goes for that aspirate smear. As a result, we tend to rely on the IHC done on the core biopsy, the actual solid sample of marrow, to get a true percentage of plasma cells. Plasma cells all express CD138 as a cell surface marker, so that's typically what we stain for to determine the plasma cell percentage. Patients with with myeloma, they can have a sort of patchy distribution of, of plasma cells throughout the bone marrow, and it can make it a little bit hard to really understand the percentage. So having a you know, obviously a hematopathologist that's highly experienced in looking at these things and making sure you have a good size sample is really important for getting an accurate, uh, an accurate appreciation of that. When it comes to flow cytometry, it is still useful. The IHC, that can only really look at one protein at a time. The, the flow cytometry these days, we're, we're able to look at a ton of different cell surface markers. And the plasma cells that are, that are diseased, that are related to the multiple myeloma, they have a sort of aberrant expression or abnormal expression of cell surface markers. And we can use this abnormal immunophenotype, as we would call it, or this abnormal protein expression to identify these plasma cells from all the other normal bystander plasma cells that might be there. Um, and understanding that immunophenotype is, is just so important because when we go to look for minimal residual disease, that is still something that's that's better on, on flow cytometry because it's able to look at so, so many cells all at once. We have that immunophenotype already established so that when we're tracking disease in the future, we have something to go by. So guys, I have a follow-up question then, right? Is that now we've made this diagnosis, but in the spirit of plasma cell dyscrasias, I think it's really important for us to talk about risk stratification. And so specifically in a patient with multiple myeloma, how are we risk stratifying these patients and identifying those that are higher risk, lower risk? Because as we've been saying, all of this is us trying to prevent further end organ damage. We want to be able to, you know, identify patients that are higher risk early, talk about, because I'm sure that's also going to impact how we approach their treatment as well. So I'm curious to hear, you know, what sorts of things we should be incorporating in our risk stratification. Really, really important. And again, historical perspective, people are probably getting bored of this, but it's mainly important because I saw this as a fellow a lot and I had no idea what it meant. So sometimes you'll hear reference or you'll read somewhere the Dury salmon staging. And this was developed in 1975. So in general, you can look it up, but generally ignore it. I mean, it's it's outdated at this point. So kind of toss that one out of the way. But you know, if you need to know it, look it up. Here's the key things. In the serum, you get certain markers. That's LDH, albumin, and beta-2 microglobulin. And these will help you risk stratify patients. But most importantly is the cytogenetic risk profile of these patients. Shout out to our prior HemePath episodes on fish testing, on cytogenetics. We highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode in that series if any of this is confusing. So I'm just going to breeze through it. So what we do is we use fish probes because we know there's a certain set of characteristic chromosomal abnormalities that occur in multiple myeloma and pretend a higher risk. The important ones to know are translocation 414, translocation 1416, deletion 17P, 
And that's important to know for all heme malignancies because this is where P53 is located. So that TP53 mutation is often associated with a deletion in 17P. And lastly, an amplification of 1Q, which is really what we're talking about there is more than three copies. You'll see gain 1Q21 sometimes, but in the myeloma community, that's not the same as an amplification of 1Q, which is greater than three copies on that FISH report. So again, translocation 414, translocation 1416, deletion 17P, and amplification 1Q. Those are all high-risk cytogenetics, and these patients have a much worse prognosis, and this will be important when thinking about treatment of these patients. When we think about combining the serum studies that we talked about with these cytogenetics, that's incorporated in the revised ISS score, which we'll link to our show notes. Awesome. Yeah, Vivek, that's really, really helpful. And and again, if you didn't catch those mutations, we'll put them in our show notes. So be sure to check that out there. So in light of that discussion, for our patient, um, recall that she has an IgG-kappa multiple myeloma, which is based on the fact that she has a bone marrow plasma cell count of 40%, which is more than that 10% cutoff. And with that, she also has these myeloma-defining events, such as the lytic lesion and her normocytic anemia. In her case, after a week or so, her FISH studies did result in her pathology report, and they suggested that she had an abnormal rearrangement of the IGH-FGFR3 location, which corresponds to a T414 translocation, and so that puts her at the, in that higher risk category based on what Vivek just said. In addition to that, she had a karyotype that was done, and that suggested that she was 46XX in all 20 chromosomes. So guys, if, if she has a normal karyotype, so the chromosomes look normal, what was the point of getting the fish and vice versa? If she has abnormalities on the fish, why do we even bother the pathologist to ask them to do a karyotype for us? Yeah, so I think the the fish is is really important because it does go after those hotspot regions that we know have important prognostic and treatment implications uh, in a very highly sensitive way. But the karyotype still does matter. It's not something that we use actively in any of our current stratification systems. But if you do see a patient that has a complex karyotype, so multiple cytogenetic abnormalities, it could potentially mean that the the plasma cell clone has a more unstable genome and is more likely to be a a kind of bad actor. There was an abstract at ASCO last year from a group at Emory that showed a complex karyotype pretended a poor progressive survival and overall survival, similar to high-risk fish by looking at a cohort of about 1,000 patients. Uh, The data is not perfect, but uh, it's certainly there's some murmurs out there that there may be prognostic implications for seeing complex karyotype. It's something that we're just going to have to keep our eye on. It's a space we're going to have to watch. So keep in mind, we don't necessarily use it in our risk stratification systems now. But if you see complex karyotype in myeloma, just like in many of our other heme malignancies, it's usually a a bad thing. Dan, that's, that's super important. And one of the things that I think I learned a lot about as we prepared for this episode is that 
when when we talked about that historical pathogenesis of multiple myeloma with those multiple genetic events occurring, when we think about a patient who had a karyotype, and let's say that that karyotype is adding more and more different chromosomal abnormalities, what that's telling us is there's more hits that's happening on that cell. And maybe that's why that relapsed refractory myeloma patient's so much harder to treat is because they've had a clonal evolution. They've developed more mutations. So the karyotype gives you that overview snapshot, not as sensitive as the fish, about are there multiple genetic abnormalities? And many times that portends a poor prognosis. All right, guys. Well, you know, I I think let's move on a little bit to talk about some of the happy stuff, response criteria, and and seeing how our patient is doing after after we treat them. So, you know, listeners, we're going to talk a little bit about, I'm going to mention how we treated this patient, but don't get caught up in those details. We will go into this in a lot more detail in subsequent episodes. But essentially, for our patient, our patient was deemed transplant eligible, and we gave her KRD times four cycles and plan to take her to an autologous transplant based on the Forte trial. Again, we'll link all this in our show notes, and we'll talk about this more in a future episode. And Guys, in this case, this patient did very well, and in fact, my attending told me that she got a, quote, VGPR after four cycles, which is great, exclamation point, end quote. That was the exact text that I received. And so I got that message, and I was like, "Mm, what do these letters mean? What is VGPR? And so maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, response criteria. Response criteria in multiple myeloma still confuses me to this day, even though I've treated multiple patients in my panel with this disease. So always look it up. It is so important that you can always look this stuff up. Eventually, it'll get a little bit committed to memory. We're going to give you a few important pearls here, though, when we talk about this response criteria. Myeloma is very interesting in that you have different levels of response. There's a partial response There's a very good partial response, which is that VGPR. There's a complete response. There's a stringent complete response. And then there's MRD negative disease. And I'll let Dan talk about the MRD testing here in just a bit. The first thing that we need to talk about is what is progressive disease? What do we define as disease progression? Because this is going to be important as we interpret treatment modalities in the next coming episodes. Good rule of thumb, 25% increase. So just think about 25% increase in your M-spike. 25% increase in your light chain ratio. You have a 25% increase in your bone marrow percentage. Those are all things. Bone marrow plasma cell percentage going up by 25%. 25%. That's progressive disease. Doesn't always mean that the patient had a symptomatic back fracture. Could just be an asymptomatic rise in their M-spike. So that's what progressive disease is. Obviously, also new bone lesions, new plasma cytomas. Those would obviously also be progressive disease. The next thing to know is what is a partial response? What is that defined by? And remember the number 50%. So it's really a 50% reduction in your M-spike. I'm going to stop there. There's plenty of other criteria that you can look up, but it's really a 50% reduction in your serum stuff, whether that's M-spike or your free light chain ratios. Again, look at the table. Very good partial response means that you can detect an M-spike, but you can't quantify it. So remember that immunofixation, you can detect the M-spike, but sometimes you can't quantify it on that SPEP. And that's when you get to that very good partial response stage. It can also mean a 90% reduction in that M-spike. Again, the way I like to think about this, if the M-spike is nearly gone, 
pretty much nearly completely gone, that's when I'm starting to think about a very good partial response. And that's really one of the important goals to get to prior to this autologous stem cell transplant. So remember that. Essentially, a close to near disappearance of the M-spike or a total disappearance of the M-spike, even if you can still detect it, right? You just can't quantify it. That's a very good partial response. When we think about complete response, that's when you have to get a bone marrow biopsy. So when we're thinking about complete response, stringent complete response, and MRD negative, this is when you're getting the bone marrow biopsy. And that's important. And a complete response is when you have less than 5% clonal plasma cells. And a stringent complete response means that you have no clonal populations of plasma cells in the bone marrow and all of your serum stuff has normalized. So again, you can look this stuff up, but here are the key points. When you're treating a patient, in general, you want to do an induction round of somewhere between four to six cycles. Ideally, you want to hit the VGPR mark before you go to stem cell transplant. And before you go to stem cell transplant, you'll be getting a bone marrow biopsy to see if they're actually in something like a CR. And before you collect those stem cells for the transplant, you want the bone marrow plasma cells to be less than 10%. So remember, you're doing multiple cycles of chemo, you're checking their serum markers, there's criteria for near disappearance of that M-spike or total disappearance of the M-spike, meaning you're at least the very good partial response. The bone marrow biopsy tells you if you're in that complete response and you want to collect your stem cells when you have less than 10% plasma cells in the bone marrow, which again is why the bone marrow is part of that response criteria. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the other things that I've seen also discussed in some of the literature is about the role of MRD, so minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease in the assessment of response for a multiple myeloma patient. So can we talk a little bit about how MRD fits into everything that Vivek just talked about? Sure. And keep in mind that this is very much an evolving part of, of the field of multiple myeloma care. Uh, we're still sorting out exactly how to fit this this measurement, this minimal residual disease measurement into treatment algorithms. There's some thought that, you know, maybe MRD negative patients, patients where we can't detect cells, even with these very advanced techniques, it's a favorable prognostic marker. Maybe we can even expose them to less maintenance treatment over the long term, but all that's still cooking. So again, just keep an eye on the space. When we talk about minimal residual disease and myeloma, there's a couple of different techniques we can use. We can use next-generation flow and next-generation sequencing. Uh, those are, tend to be the things that you see in, in clinical trials. I remember with our typical flow cytometry, we're looking to a depth of 1 in 10,000 cells. So we can detect down to 1 times 10 to the negative fourth. With next-generation flow, we're always trying to get better and better, right? Next-generation flow can get you down to 1 in a million. And so that's 1 times 10 to the negative six cells. It's a highly automated process, which is nice, and it is standardized. Um, the, the Euroflow consortium kind of has standards on how to do this, and it uses that, that baseline immunophenotype we were talking about before. We still get valuable information from that initial flow cytometry testing, but uh, there are some downsides. You, you need to test it pretty quickly within getting the specimen, so availability is going to be a challenge. It needs to be tested within 24, 48 hours of collecting the specimen for the sensitivity to really be that high, and we... Because we're not looking at the genes themselves, we're not looking at the karyotype of these cells, we're just identifying the previously established immunophenotype, we can't really look at 
what degree of clonal evolution, if any, there is in residual disease that's picked up. And so people were thinking, well, maybe NGS is, is, a, is a good solution here too. NGS or next generation sequencing is also sort of around that depth of one in a million. You know, of course, again, always trying to get better. There's some uh, some data that emerged this last ASH meeting that maybe we can even get down to one in 10 million cells, you know, another order of magnitude of sensitivity. Um, but basically, NGS uses the heavy chain and light chain loci that are associated with the plasma cell clone. So remember, every plasma cell is producing a unique immune protein, be it unique light chains, unique immunoglobulin, whatever the case may be. So they, it will have a specific genetic signature that we can look for with NGS. One of the nice things about NGS is that it could be used to establish clonal evolution to, to look at whether or not there have been additional genetic changes in subclones of the myeloma cells, which again could have implications on treatment in the future. All of this is kind of very forward thinking. You know, with NGS, there are some definite upsides over over next generation flow or conventional flow cytometry. It doesn't need to be processed immediately. We can capture almost all of those immunoglobulin gene rearrangements. And there have been some companies out there that have standardized this. Adapted Biotechnologies is the, the big name out there. But on the downside, it is very expensive, labor-intensive, and time-consuming. So again, availability of this kind of technique is it, it really is not ready for for prime time in terms of being widely available at all these treatment centers out there. And interpretation similarly takes up a pretty high level of expertise. So, you know, something coming down the road, but uh, for right now, not something that's in wide clinical use. Super cool to hear, though, that stuff like this is on the horizon, because as we've been seeing in many different disease types, this is, uh, you know, this sort of testing is becoming instrumental in how we're approaching our patients these days. So that's that's awesome. And just remember, you know, we're recording this in January of 2023. So if it is later in 2023 or you're listening to this in 2024, maybe maybe these are things that we're doing all the time now. So just, you know, yeah, keep an eye on the latest developments because myeloma changes very fast. Yeah, that's super important, Dan. And, and, you know, this MRD testing, we're really just thinking in our heads, if we can't detect one in 10 million or one in a million cells, maybe, just maybe, we're at a functional cure stage. That is very forward thinking. And, and I don't think we're close to being able to definitely say that, but that's really what we're, what we're trying to do and how we're utilizing this testing to say, hey, some of these patients may not need therapy for 10, 15 years. And that would be great if we could, if that were the case and if it led to better survival. But we'll, we'll talk in the next several episodes about what that means and what that will look like. Guys, I, I thought that this was a fantastic discussion. And, you know, I thank you as always for, for walking us through a lot of this information. You know, again, listeners, a lot of this information will be in our show notes. So you can go back and review all of it. But essentially, the essence of everything that we're talking about here is the workup to try to identify patients that require treatment earlier in their disease course just to prevent long-term detrimental outcomes to organ function and to overall their quality of life. Yeah, definitely. And that's why we have slim criteria now, right? Is that we wanted to prevent the end organ damage, right? How do we prevent the end organ damage? And the last thing that we want to say before ending the episode today is that currently we can't cure multiple myeloma. This is a chronic disease management. We have to think about progression-free survival, time point number one, PFS2, PFS3 even, with all the therapies we have. And you'll see how this will get 
very, very complicated, but we want to keep patients off treatment as long as possible. And this risk stratification is very important. This MRD testing is very important because we need to make sure we set the patients on the right course. Great reminder, Vivek. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Fellow One Call. So until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.